everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined by my co-host, John Allen Gay. This week, we're going deep on one specific region as we talk all things West Africa with Dr. Alex Thurston. Dr. Alex Thurston is an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, and an expert on Islam and politics in Northwest Africa through the 20th and 21st centuries. He's conducted field research in Nigeria, Senegal, Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, and he's published a number of books on security in West Africa. Dr. Thurston has a deep level of expertise on terrorism, security, and politics in West Africa, and our conversation today connects his work with the role that America has played and continues to play in West Africa's deteriorating security situation. Join us for our conversation with Dr. Alex Thurston. Dr. Alex Thurston, thank you so much for coming on Security Dilemma. Uh, the security situation in the Sahel is often described as deteriorating. What is your big picture assessment of the region's trajectory? What do you consider to be any sort of major motivating causes to, to what we're seeing today? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Second, I think, you know, first, maybe we could define the region a little bit. So when people say, you know, the, the Sahel at this point, they often mean Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. So these five countries, you could maybe include Senegal as well. And there are other definitions that would be, you know, even broader and would stretch all the way to the Horn of Africa. But basically nowadays, when people say the Sahel, they mean those five countries that I first mentioned. When people mean, when people say the Sahel, I think oftentimes nowadays, especially mean Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, because Mauritania and Chad have a slightly different trajectory. So Mauritania is a bit of an exception in certain ways. Um, Mauritania had a phase where it was suffering, you know, episodic jihadist attacks between 2005 and 2011. But since then, it's been relatively stable. Chad has all sorts of internal problems. Chad has faced, you know, serious rebellions and so forth in the in the past and the present. But Chad is also somewhat more politically stable. So really, then we're talking about kind of the other three when people say the deterioration. Um, and definitely there has been a deterioration. One could take it back to, to 2012 or to, you know, 2015, 2016. Um, but there's been a kind of set of interlocking developments. You have the, um, the, the rise and the tenacity of violence by jihadists associated with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. You have, um, you know, you could put various names on them, but you call them communal militias. You could call them ethnic militias, community self-defense groups, whatever you want to call them, um, groups that are organized on basically a, you know, an ethnic or a clan basis. Um, you've also had significant, significant violence by state security forces. So, you know, in Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger, the, um, you know, the, the militaries and the police and so forth have been accused of extensive human rights violations, you know, torture, um, detention um, without serious cause, uh, killings of people and so forth. So the state violence has been a huge factor in this. And then, you know, those were the trends, you know, going into 2020. So the trends, you know, the deterioration was already there before the recent wave of coups. But then the recent wave of coups, you know, since 2020 in Mali um, and also in Burkina Faso and Niger has, has then compounded the the insecurity. So as, as one possible uh, factor in, in this insecurity, a, lo- a lot of the, these coups uh, are accompanied by 
protests about the French presence in the region. Uh, the, nonetheless, the French presence in the Sahel seems to be scaling back or even entirely on its way out. But a lot of this anti-French uh, sentiment is, is characterizing the language used by a lot of the leaders who do these coups. How do you think the French presence has historically impacted the security conditions that we see today? Yeah, so obviously, like the the French have a deep, deep you know presence and history in the region. They were the the colonial power, you know, across a lot of West Africa and and you know across the the entirety of the Sahel. Um, and that's you know that's just really you know two, three, four generations ago at this point. You know that's within living memory for some people. And and French colonialism, you know, brought a, a, a tremendous amount of you know physical violence, ex- economic exploitation with it. And then there's been, you know, the, the serious and to my mind, you know, well-founded charge that France has acted as a as a neo-colonial power in various ways since since independence in 1960. That France has exercised, you know, sort of undue influence over um, the the economies of the region and and especially over the you know the the currency and the kind of monetary situation, um, and also significant influence over politics and a lot of the you know, elected officials in the region have, you know, have been French educated, have been close. That doesn't mean that they're puppets of France per se, but that does mean that they have been somewhat, you know, Paris oriented in terms of, in terms of their, their values and their, and their political approach. More recently, France went into Mali in early 2013 because there had been a, a takeover by jihadists and allies of Al Qaeda of, of the major cities in northern Mali. Um, I should say too that you know France's popularity or unpopularity in the region has fluctuated over time and has varied from place to place. So it's not just all kind of unremitting, you know, dislike of France, um, but it's also been you know at times France has has undertaken actions that were popular. So there does seem to have been a lot of support and acclaim when they went into Mali in 2013. Um, after that, though, I think they saw that goodwill, you know, progressively dissipate. So France then pivoted from its initial intervention in northern Mali to a region-wide counterterrorism mission called Barkhan. And that, I think then, you know, the the trust that ordinary people had in, in France and in France's intentions, you know, and there wasn't universal trust in the first place, but I think there was this kind of peak after 2013, that that eroded over time. And so by the time you got to 2020, then there was, I think, a lot of just suspicion of France because, I mean, France's basic problem was that they they killed a lot of high-level jihadist leaders, but the overall security situation continued to deteriorate. So ordinary people had, you know, significant questions about why that was the case. Some of that led into kind of conspiracy theorizing and the idea that France was there to you know, just straight up plunder the region or that France was there to to foment instability. I was never convinced of any of that. But I think that France acted in a an arrogant and imperious way. I think they relied on a, a narrow kind of, le- you know, top level engagement with the civilian presidents of the region. I think that they were you know, deaf to to criticisms. And I think that they they never, I think, took seriously that gap between what they regarded as their counterterrorism accomplishments and then the the insecurity and uncertainty that ordinary people faced. So, you know, and I think France then has also been been quick, and the United States to some extent, have been quick to dismiss the criticisms of France as Russian propaganda or as, you know, the kind of um, superficial discourses of, of fake civil society groups. And there's definitely some of that, right? There's definitely, 
you know, significant Russian propaganda, although there's also significant French propaganda in the region, or there was. Um, and there's also, you know, some civil society groups that, that you know, seem to have really popped up, you know, sometimes maybe with Russian funding. So all that is true. But at the same time, I think France then, you know, uh, took that as an indication that there wasn't much legitimate criticism. And I think that, I think the criticism is, is broadly felt, you know, and that there are some people who, you know, and many people in the Sahel who can articulate again, like serious, serious criticisms of France, you know, French policy over the last 10 years and then French policy since, since 1960. So, and, and then, I mean, to wrap up, I think the, the juntas, the, you know, the coup makers in the region have taken advantage of that and have, have, channeled anti-French sentiment to boost their own popularity and justify their own coups. How does the United States fit into all this? Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. is a secondary player in the region to some extent. I think there's been, and now this is changing, I think it's changing week by week, but for years, you know, even from, you know, before 9-11, but, but I think um, even after 9-11, there was a sense that this was this was a French-dominated region that, you know, the U.S. and France are allies. And so that, that management of the region's, you know, or engagement with the region's political problems and especially security problems could be more or less outsourced to France. I mean, there were, at the same time, there were significant U.S. training activities, counterterrorism missions. There were, there were some, you know, ambiguous U.S. deployments. I mean, to, to give a few more details on that. You know, there was something first called the Pan-Sahel Initiative. Then there was a, a broader program that's still in place called um, TSCTP or the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership. So there's been a ton of training. There's also this came to light, you know, especially in the, the 2017 incident in Niger where four U.S. soldiers were killed. There do seem to be U.S. troops operating at least sometimes on the ground. Sometimes, you know, the euphemism that's used for this is, is you know, talk about advising, assisting and accompanying and the idea that U.S. troops never get pulled into combat. I think, I think some of that seems to be misleading and that there's maybe more, I, who knows, right? Um, but there seems to be more U.S. involvement in, in direct kind of counterterrorism than, than is sometimes uh, admitted or acknowledged. But within all that, you know, once, once the French went in, especially in 2013 to Mali, I think Washington saw France as, as having the lead. Now, I think that it's become so clear that France's policies politically and, and militarily have hit a dead end. I think there is a conversation in Washington about uh, breaking with France or, or at least putting some distance between U.S. policy and French policy. And I should say, you know, another, I mean, one advantage for the U.S. in some ways of being a somewhat secondary actor in the Sahel is there is, there is much less anti-American sentiment than there is anti-French sentiment. Um, and actually, I mean, Peace Corps has now been suspended in a lot of places, but I think even Peace Corps from past decades has left a, a, a reservoir of actually goodwill toward toward the U.S. in some places. One of the other players that's been getting a lot of press in the region is Russia. You know, there's been presence of the Wagner Group at, at times. Uh, what what role are they playing here? And do you think... What what impact do you think it's going to have on regional stability, on U.S. interests in the region? Yeah, I mean, this is really fluid too, especially after the the death of Prigozhin, uh, you know, the founder and leader of the Wagner Group in August. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, objectively speaking, there's been a, a serious growth in Russian influence in the region, um, both direct kind of Russian government influence and the influence of the Wagner Group. So. 
on the Russian government side, you've had, you know, a number of defense deals. Um, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, you know, frequently visits Africa, including coming to Mali and, and other places. Um, you know, the, the, um, the, the Russian, you know, government and Putin have been, have been keen to engage some of the military leaders, you know, the, the new military leader, Burkina Faso, Traore gave a kind of a, you know, very enthusiastic speech when he was at the Russia Africa summit, um, not too long ago. Then you have the Wagner Group, which is, you know, has a contract with the Malian government, has since, you know, I want to say late 2021, um, and has been very visible in, in, you know, human rights abuses and, and what the, the Junta in Mali calls their, their rise in power. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about whether Wagner would go into Burkina Faso and then into Niger after you had the military coups there. So far, it doesn't seem like they've gone into either country in any sort of formal capacity and there's no evidence of them in Niger at all from what I've seen. Um, and then, like I was saying at the beginning, it's a little bit fluid now with, um, with the death of Prigozhin, what the, what the fate of Wagner will be. Although it does seem that, you know, let's say the Kremlin takes more direct control over, even more direct control over Wagner. Um, it does seem like they're probably there to stay in Mali, at least for the medium term. With all that said, I'll add one more thing, which is I think that in Washington, the threat of Russia or the influence of Russia has been has been substantially exaggerated. So again, I think objectively speaking, you could track Russian influence in the region, no question. But I think then Washington, you know, the, the commentariat, the U.S. government, et cetera, have described that at a level that I think is out of proportion to the to the facts on the ground. Um, and I think there's sometimes an inflated sense of, of Russia's own capacities, you know, Russia's... Um, you know, has all sorts of, of internal economic and, and demographic problems and so forth. And I think Russia may not be able to project power as much as some in Washington really, um, really think it can. Why do you think Russia is is there to begin with, like like, like being involved? I mean, one, one theory I've been increasingly hearing um, that, you know, it's it, it, it's almost this idea of like weaponized migration. Western Europe has already been, uh, has, has already had a lot of political instability as a result of uh, migration patterns from, uh, you know, Northern Africa. Do you think there's any, any uh, credence to this theory? Like what, 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 what does Russia in the midst of a, um, you know, heavily attrition based war uh, gain from investing resources in West Africa? Yeah, I think. I mean, my understanding of it is that, is that the reasons are pretty pretty crude, right? That they see they see opportunities for you know for profit, both from from you know natural resources and then also from uh, you know from these contracts for for Wagner and so forth. I think that Russia is interested in you know contesting French and American influence. I think they they're interested in building you know political alliances, uh, including amid the war in Ukraine. Um, but I'm not sure that it goes really beyond that. I mean, you know, sometimes Putin is just, you know depicted as this kind of master chess player, right? But I think that I think they partly sort of just experiment to see where the opportunities are. Yeah, um, in this sort of conversation about uh, uh, French versus American influence on the uh, modern circumstances in the region, something that often comes up is uh, the collapse of Muammar Gaddafi's regime in Libya under an American military inter- intervention in 2011. I mean, you were talking about the French intervention in in Mali, um, which I, I understand is often attributed to the Tuareg uprisings yes. that, uh, you know, pl- like like the collapse of the Libyan state, uh, you know, played a role in that. How, how do you interpret um, the 2011 Libya intervention as a factor in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that, 
to, to my mind, the you know the NATO intervention in Libya was was a mistake, right? And I think you can see that borne out by by the situation within Libya. Um, that's not to defend Gaddafi at all. I mean, um, Gaddafi was was you know I, I don't know I don't I don't think anybody needs to spell out you know how how autocratic of a ruler he was and how many sort of abuses of power you know accrued to to his name. At the same time. I don't see a, a tight and direct connection between the the Libya intervention and what happened in Mali. You could you could draw one, right? You could say, okay, you know, many Tuareg, you know, combatants and and just ordinary Tuareg went back to Mali and back to other parts of the Sahel after the the situation in Libya became untenable for them. You could talk about the movement of weapons and so forth. Um, I think sometimes though the the impact of this gets a bit exaggerated and. Sometimes Sahelian leaders have been keen to make this argument, right, that without the 2011, you know, uh, you know, intervention in Libya, you wouldn't have the problems in the Sahel. That can be a convenient argument for Sahelian leaders because then it lets them off the hook to a certain extent. In Mali, I think you could say that the, the 2011 intervention in Libya was a contributing factor to the 2012 uprising in Mali. But I think it would also be important to say that there was a rebellion in Northern Mali in 2006. There was a rebellion in Northern Mali in 1990. There was one in 1963. So in a way, there was already kind of a domestic cycle of, of you know, crises and rebellions. And now there's going to be probably another rebellion unfolding almost as we speak. So I think that, you know, did Libya, did the Libya intervention help? No. But was it the only cause? Definitely, definitely not. There's a lot of, you know, finger pointing about the situation, but one factor isn't actually, well, it, it is in some sense human, but certainly indirectly, uh, the climate, uh, you know, th- there's, there's desert, greater desertification, the, uh, you know, shrinking of Lake Chad, uh, fomenting, uh, uh, as I understand it, the Boko Haram crisis in a lot of ways. Um, how, how do you think the climate crisis affects security in the region? And uh, how do you expect it to affect security in the near term as conditions worsen? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I see it definitely as a, as a compounding factor. I mean, there's been, you know, as I'm sure you know, like, you know, vivid debates about this and, you know, with regard to Syria, with regard to Iraq, with regard to many theaters around the world. I think, you know, the sophisticated kind of argument that I've heard and that convinces me is that, is that again, like you don't point to climate, you can't point to climate change as like the, the single factor, but it becomes this kind of compounding and exacerbating factor. So when you look at um, central Mali, so the, the Mopti region, the Segu region, which have been some of the foremost theaters of conflict in the entire crisis, you have serious tensions between farmers and herders over the use of land, right? And so the combination of, of population growth um, of all the climate change factors that you mentioned, put serious, serious strains on, you know, on, on relations, even relations between communities that were formerly, you know, in, in harmony. So, yeah, and I think, you know, the trajectory of all this is then quite, quite grim. Um, I think all those pressures on, on land use, you know, and farmer herder conflicts now can be observed across a lot of, a lot of parts of West Africa um, and beyond, you know, even into to Sudan and so forth. So, yeah, I think that, you know, it's hard actually in some ways to avoid a, a really, really grim kind of prognosis for the, the future of the region because all of the all of the factors that have played into current instability are basically all poised to get worse. When we talk about instability, uh, my understanding is that, you know, jihadist violence is, is often characterized as, as a pretty big part of that. But we, we've also seen some major leadership overhauls in some of the biggest international terror networks like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State uh, in which... Uh, 
I mean, not not to not to root for someone, but uh, the, the more meritocratic uh, people who had success in West Africa were not chosen over you know people who were from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, how how do you see how do you see these the evolution of these terror networks in sort of the this twenty twenty three era where you might be getting major elements of American and French um, counterterrorism operations in West Africa, uh, you know, sort of going away at the request of Africans. Yeah, I see the you know the jihadist groups in the Sahel as being I don't want to say just nominally connected, but like slightly more than nominally connected to to Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. I mean, I think it I think it means something. They clearly they clearly communicate. You know, if if the Islamic State, what's sometimes called the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara or Islamic State Sahel Province, if they if they conduct an attack, it'll be reported in you know Islamic State global media. So definitely they're they're in touch and and. Africa has been described, right, you know, and it's borne out by the numbers as kind of the epicenter of, of, you know, ISIS now or the epicenter of, you know, jihadist violence in the world. But I think beyond some of the, you know, propaganda connections and maybe occasionally there are consultations and, you know, maybe some money flows back and forth. Sometimes evidence of that comes to light, although the money is very hard to track. I think aside from that, though, I think a lot of decisions are taken locally. And I think a lot of decisions are, you know, at the, the unit level, or at least at the, the level of the group, um, the leader of, of the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Mali, which is called JNM, and, and the leader's name is Yada Ghali, is a, you know, really in some ways a, a grimly kind of fascinating figure and has had multiple kind of iterations to his career, including as, as the leader of the main um, you know, Tuareg uprising in 1990 and again in 2006. You know, somebody who was at, at points, you know, an advisor to presidents of Mali. So this is this is a complex figure, right? And and more complex, I think, than your average kind of person who just comes out of the jihadist milieu. So the idea that you know somebody like that, who's that sophisticated, would be kind of sitting there waiting to get instructions from somebody who's lived in you know under house arrest or something in Iran for for you know a decade. Like I don't I don't see that, right? I think that the I think that there's a lot of kind of autonomy. At the at the national and local level, yeah. So, how much are these groups that are under Al Qaeda or ISIS branding? How much should, like, say, Western countries see them as a part of the Al Qaeda ISIS threat to the West? Because uh, I've I've heard allegations that in at least some of these cases, it's more of a brand. And we step into these conflicts, not realizing that there are these other social, local layers to the conflicts. And, you know, the the folks that are hosting us are more than happy to encourage us to see it as a terror fight when it might be as much an ethnic conflict or an economic conflict or something like that. Yeah, that's well said, especially about how the sometimes the the quote unquote partner governments take advantage of this, you know, label of, of terrorism and Al Qaeda and ISIS. And and I think that, you know, governments in, in this region and others are, are well aware of how to speak the kind of language that will that will entice, you know, Washington. Um yeah, I think that the, you know, the you know, the, there's no question about the the level of violence and brutality that you know groups such as JNM and, and ISGS are willing to to dole out. Right, their record against against civilians is is atrocious. Um, 
but neither of them, in my view, is, is a direct threat to the United States or, or even a significant threat to, to so-called U.S. interests. Um, I think they've shown no intention even of attacking, you know, French soil, let alone American soil. Um, there's a good paper. I'm trying to think of, uh, gosh, I can't, I cannot remember what, I think it might've appeared in, in defense one. I can, I can try to, um, to dig up the link for you guys, but it was going very carefully through, you know, the actual record of different jihadist groups in Africa and how much intent they had shown to attack the United States. And then the conclusion, you know, even for something like Shabab in Somalia, where there's more evidence of them, you know, trying to plot internationally or, or beyond their own region. Um, even there, you know, I would, I would say, you know, Shabab and, and this paper I'm trying to, to think of was making the same case. You know, even Shabab is not a direct threat to the United States, in, in my view. I think that, you know, so much less JNM and, and ISGS, which I think have a fundamentally kind of regional orientation. And in fact, you know, I think the more, um, the more kind of involvement and pressure that, that the United States puts there, the, the more there is a risk of, of you know, American interests being threatened and so forth. And even with France, you know, JNIM had said repeatedly, basically, we want the French to leave. The messaging was never, and then we're going to chase you back to France, right? And they've shown no, you know, no intention of, you know, planting bombs in Paris or something like that. To, to follow up on that, you know, people have also made that kind of argument about the Taliban in, Af in Afghanistan, that it's a, it's a movement with predominantly Afghanistan-focused goals, but that they also have had this relationship with Al-Qaeda. And at least, you know, at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, that caused serious security problems for the United States, you know, that they were willing to tolerate the presence of other uh, jihadist elements in their area. Do you think, do you think that that's a possibility? Because you know, I could see somebody saying, we need to keep the pressure on in these places so that it doesn't change into something bigger or broader. Yeah, I think there's been a fear since since 9-11 of the so-called, you know, terrorist safe haven, right? And that if, if a hardline group carves out a territory, that they'll then consolidate control over that territory and they'll use it to plan attacks um, against Western targets. I think that 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 kind of idea rests, to my mind, on on a on such a simplified view of the 9-11 plot that it becomes inaccurate, right? The 9-11 plot was planned, you know, partly in Afghanistan, but also partly in Malaysia, partly in Spain, partly in Germany, you know, partly in Florida, right? Partly in this own, you know, this country, right? I think that 9-11 had more to do with, with American security lapses than it did, um, you know, with, with Taliban control over Afghanistan. Um, and I think then, too, that that kind of, you know, spending now almost a quarter century trying to avoid replicating uh, an episode that, that again, I think is misunderstood in some basic ways that, that has led us, you know, the U S to, to run all over the world, oftentimes making situations worse. I mean, what, what has the U S fundamentally achieved in, in Somalia, right? What has, you know, what did France achieve in, in Mali? France would, you know, deploy some of the same rhetoric too, about, you know, wanting to, to avoid, um, the consolidation of, of you know, terrorist slash jihadist control in, in Mali or the Sahel. Um, but again and again, you know, efforts by outside powers to, to, to crack down and defeat jihadist groups have, have ended in failure. It's a dead end, I think. So my understanding is that, you know, um, well, 
in in Afghanistan and Iraq, America swept through and kind of you know ham-fistedly installed a, uh, a a new government. Uh, we are we are cooperating with people who already have a base of power, a long-standing base of power in their in their countries in much of West Africa. Uh, nonetheless, you know, uh, people like President Bazoum of Niger uh, represented this ideal, the, 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 this this like like the sort of the best case scenario, and um, I I think that's a big reason why there's been so much reaction to. Uh, the collapse of his administration. What do you think we were missing? What wasn't America seeing about Bazoum's presidency and its instability? And what lessons can be learned in in how we how we how we work with with um, relatively healthy democracies in that region? Yeah, I think that there was. A, I think American officials were quite quite aware, but I think that they just didn't take seriously enough. Uh, a pattern of you know what we could call civilian authoritarianism under his predecessor and then under him. So under his predecessor Isafu, there were you know in in the 2016 election when Isafu was reelected, for example, the the main opposition candidate was detained for a lot of the campaign. Um, in the 2020 slash 2021 elections, which took place in two rounds that that resulted in Bazoum's victory, that same opposition candidate Hama Amadou was was blocked from running. Um, at the same time, there were all sorts of arrests of human rights activists, journalists, bloggers, you know, kind of egregiously um, punitive court cases brought against people who had made criticisms. There was a huge, um, you know, audit of the of defense procurement that, that pointed to all sorts of corruption and abuses that was basically swept under the rug without much accountability. So all the signs were there that Niger's democracy and, and you know, kind of um, governance were a lot more brittle and, and fragile than people would have liked to believe. But I think there was kind of a, a search to find a, a darling and a, and a reliable partner. I think that's, I mean, in terms of lessons for the future, I think that's the number one you know, place to start is, is not to idealize people and not to put them on a pedestal, not to turn this leader into, oh, they're such a good guy, they're, they're our partner. Because um, I think that perception can have you know, negative effects. I think then another you know, thing to do is to be to be more critical of of so-called allies and partners. Um, I think in in the short run, I think U.S. officials are wary of calling out a flawed election, or they're wary of pushing back against you know these arrests of of critics and so forth. But I think you know if there's not some real pushback against that, then again the the system can get fairly brittle. Now, though, I mean, there's a huge you know crossroads in in policy for the region. I mean, you have military regimes that don't seem to be going anywhere, have no intention of leaving. Um, if the U.S. you know, wants to try to work with them, which some you know, elements of the U.S. government seem to want to work with the junta in Niger, then the U.S. has violated its own stated principles about you know, democracy promotion and so forth, and, and it will incentivize further coups. At the same time, I think the U.S. fears a bit being kind of frozen out and losing whatever influence it has accrued. To go to another regional partner, or you know, partner by a stretch of the word, uh, how do you think the death of Idris Deby and uh, and you know his the 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 leadership of his son Mahatma Deby? Uh, how do you think that's affected security in the region? Do you think the country is at risk of going the way of Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger? I mean, definitely Idris Deby's death, you know, on the battlefield, right? You know, directly wounded and then and then died. I mean, this this was dramatic and pointed to the fact that you know throughout his his time in power from 1990 to 2021 
there were periodic and serious rebel threats. You know, there's there's been less of a of a jihadist problem in in Chad. They've had some spillover from the Boko Haram crisis in Nigeria, but on the whole, the rebels have been more kind of I think we could say quote unquote conventional. But they've still been a serious serious threat to the state at multiple points. All those threats are still there. I think you know Mohammed Debi taking over. It's effectively the same people continuing in power. Um, so I, you know, his father's death, I think, shows that that the yeah the threats to him are real. I don't I don't foresee sort of the breakup or the collapse of of Chad. I think that you know the the people in power have been relatively skillful over the years at, at trying to co opt certain rebels, freeze out others, fight when necessary. I think that they're political survivors. Um, at the same time, I, I think you know the French were very quick to embrace um, Mohamed Debi. I mean, Macron even went and, and appeared next to Mohamed Debi at his at his father's funeral. And I think that sent a real message then about how France will will prioritize stability over democracy. And I think the U.S. will too when it comes to the case of Chad. And that, that I think, did send a message, you know, maybe unintended to some of the other coup makers in the region um, that, that there's not going to be some ironclad, you know, resistance to coups, but that Paris and Washington are going to take it case by case. Some other big news in the region in terms of leadership is that it seems like uh, uh, Macky Sall in Senegal has agreed to step down. Uh, Senegal uh, has often seemed pretty politically tumultuous, uh, but do you think he's going to follow through on his promise? And if so, what do you think the end of his administration might imply for the region? Yeah, I think that, you know, Senegal, again, like, you know, even more than Niger, I think Senegal has been seen as like the good one for, for good reason. I mean, there's never been a there's never been a military coup in Senegal since independence. Um, there's been peaceful transfers of power from from incumbents to op- or relatively peaceful transfers of power from incumbents to opposition. And Macky Sall, had he gone for a third term, I think really would have risked some serious turmoil there. I mean, not not necessarily a coup, but I mean, it, it could have gotten quite unpredictable. And I think there would have been huge, huge protests and backlash. So it's good that he that he has agreed to step down. And yeah, I do think that he'll follow through on that. At the same time, I think he's already shown, you know, amply that he is going to keep a very tight grip on things, you know, as he leaves and, and he's probably going to try to after after he leaves as well. You know, he's he's designated um, one of his close allies, Ahmed Baz, as his successor. He has cracked down really, really hard on the main, on his main opponent, whose name is Usman Sanko. And that kind of crackdown on Sonko and his party continues to reverberate through Senegalese politics and, and to, to anger a lot of youth and to be a cause for, for political instability. So, you know, the worst case scenario of Saul seeking a third term has been avoided, but I think we're still in a pretty bad place for Senegalese democracy in terms of the, you know, the ruling elite trying to monopolize power. In terms of general leadership, uh how do you think the election of Bola Tinubu and uh, his threats about intervention against Niger uh, might affect some of Nigeria's prospects for uh, for long sought regional leadership? You know, uh, any any chance at a regional currency? Uh, how, how do you think any of any of that might have been affected by his election and uh, pretty bold statements? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one thing maybe to say is is that there's. You know, his election was was very divisive and, and I think very flawed in some key ways. And, and you know, the Nigerian critics of Tinubu will say sometimes, you know, why why has there been so much objection to these military coups when we see the, the election of Tinubu as a kind of electoral coup? Um, I think it's quite possible that Tinubu did get the largest share of, of the votes in Nigeria when there was the election. 
But I think it's also quite possible that the that the actual voting numbers would have placed him well below the threshold necessary for a runoff. Um, and that basically, basically, I'm saying I think that I think the ruling party rigged their way into avoiding a runoff. Um, you know, can't necessarily prove that, but I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of evidence to to suggest that that's the case. So he comes to power then with with you know very mixed domestic legitimacy, right? And and there will be. I think significant numbers of Nigerians who never really see him as the as the legitimate president. At the same time, his his predecessor Buhari was, I think, particularly um, slow-footed on on in decision making, um, bad at at communicating clearly and effectively with the Nigerian people. Um, you know, punched well under Nigeria's weight on the regional and the international stage, and just generally kind of a, a lackadaisical pregnant, uh, presidency. I mean, he had, you know, he had all sorts of problems that he inherited on the security front, on the economic front. I mean, being president in Nigeria, this is one of the toughest jobs in the world, no question. Um, but I still think it was, again, a, a lackluster, you know, a lackadaisical kind of presidency. Tinubu then has shown a lot more energy Right, so he's you know on the on the economic side, and I've I've you know I mean it's sort of off topic for this this show, but I mean I've I've disagreed with some of his economic reforms because I think that they tend to hurt ordinary people, especially he removed a, a fuel subsidy that a lot of Nigerians depend on. But at the same time, there's no question that he's already more energetic than Buhari and more engaged domestically and and at the regional level. I think the the threat, you know, to intervene militarily you know, under the banner of ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states, that threat to intervene militarily in Niger, I think was was reckless. I think he overplayed his hand there. Um, I think it's clear that within ECOWAS, there's not, you know, anything like united support behind that idea. Within Nigeria, there's a lot of objections to that, especially from the north because of the tight links between southern Niger and northern Nigeria. Um, so I don't know. I mean, now they're in a phase where I think they're going to negotiate, you know, how long the, the timetable is supposed to be for turning over to civilian rule. I don't think there's going to be a, an armed intervention. Um, I, so I think, I mean, to sum up, I think it's good that Tinubu is much more engaged than Buhari. I think that at the end of the day, and this, it almost like pains me to say this because I'm, I'm very anti-coup, but, but I think Nigeria and the others may find that they're stuck with the junta in Niger for, for a while. How stable do you feel like Nigeria is politically in the long term? Because I, I hear a lot of optimism about Nigeria, you know, growing population, growing economy, possibly able to carry more weight in the region, become more of a global player. But at the same time, it has had a number of internal conflicts. It's had some challenges at moments of political transition it's got some, you know, some various fissures within its society. How how are they looking for the future? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of kind of like top line politics, like I I don't I don't expect a coup in Nigeria. I mean, one could always be wrong, and, and nowadays, you know, with the wave of coups since twenty twenty, I mean, you know, if, if we woke up tomorrow and there was a coup and you know a coup in Abuja, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. But I don't expect it. I think that, I mean, Nigeria was under military rule for a lot of its history from through nineteen ninety nine, but since then, I think there has been a relatively strong norm that has set in, you know, an anti coup norm. And again, I think Tinubu is showing himself a more effective manager than than the past president. So I think that the kind of basic stability of the political system will hold. Um, I think that in terms of security, yeah, Nigeria is in very bad shape. I mean, 
there's there's all sorts of intersecting crises, you know, jihadist violence, banditry, separatism, criminality, um, and all that has a huge effect on on the economy and then just on ordinary people's ability to to live their lives and to move around. So I, Nigeria has a very mixed picture going forward, I would say. You mentioned ECOWAS earlier, and I, I've heard talk from some circles about uh, ECOWAS or the African Union, some of these other regional and continental bodies trying to kind of step up to provide regional political, economic, security, stability, uh, kind of African solutions for African problems model. How viable do you feel like that is? I think at the moment that ECOWAS and the African Union, the AU, have have weak hands to play. And I think that the, the wave of coups has shown that, you know, in all cases, starting from Mali in 2020, ECOWAS has attempted to push back, to, to dictate timetables, to impose sanctions on countries that don't comply. All Some of that, I think, in, you know, coming from a, a good place, right, trying to impose and, and enforce democratic norms. But they've been flummoxed basically time and again by, by military regimes that I think have shown that they can, they can you know, that they're, they're more or less in a position to dictate terms to ECOWAS rather than the other way around. There's going to be a big test in Mali next year when, when elections are supposed to be held and when I would guess that the junta will run its own leader, Asimi Goita, for, for the presidency and win. Um, ECOWAS also has its own kind of internal problems and contradictions. You know, ECOWAS has reacted harshly to these, these coups, but has not reacted as harshly to, to civilians taking third terms and so forth, which then sometimes contribute directly to coups, especially in the case of, of Guinea. So, you know, yeah, Echo and the AU, you know, maybe the AU has a, a somewhat better reputation than Echo. I don't know. It's, that's even hard to say. But I think, you know, the AU has been has been challenged as well. Um, you know, and they've been accused of acting inconsistently, you know, treating, for example, Chad differently from from Mali or Burkina Faso or Niger. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think the regional organizations don't have a lot of clout and influence at this point. What do you think uh, organizations like the AU can do to, to, to become a credible alternative? I mean, I know that uh, ASEAN had, was, was pretty effective at points in being a regional actor promoting regional stability. Do you think there's a path there? That's a tough one. I mean, I would like to, I mean, maybe this is my own idealism, but I, I think that I think the first step would be a bit more consistency. You know, I think it's hard to, it's hard to, to, be the credible flag bearer of democratic norms if if you're if you're inconsistent about how you treat one situation versus another um yeah that would be my starting point for for the au or ECOWAS. but that's difficult that's difficult i mean some of their own most influential members you know are are violators of democratic norms so it places them in a tremendously awkward position there's uh you know they didn't invent this language, but we're seeing a lot of sort of anti-imperialist, almost in the tradition of Thomas Sankara language from this new generation of coup leaders. With this anti-imperialist rhetoric, do you think they are, could build their own support like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela? Or do you think they are more similar to past transitional governments and, you know, it'll it'll be like a few years? I think they're mostly, you know, sort of cosplaying or whatever one wants to say like i don't think that they're genuine kind of revolutionaries or or anti-imperialists or something like that i think that they're mostly self-interested and i think that the record of the junta in in mali above all shows that 
But I also think that rhetoric is quite effective, especially in, in national capitals. You know, even when these juntas don't necessarily control the, the countryside, they're often able to rally mass support. And, and they have, you know, followed through on, on expelling and antagonizing the French in various ways. And that, that plays very well. I mean, some of the, the, you know, footage of crowds from Niger, you know, when the French ambassador was refusing to leave. and so forth. I mean, you know, the juntas have, have tapped into something that people really feel. And, you know, you mentioned... Um, Sankara, I mean, these these symbols from the past remain really, really potent, you know, even for people who were born long after, you know, Sankara was killed. Um, but I think that, you know, over the long term, I think this is going to, to, to wear thin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the juntas will fall from power. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, in Mali, next year, they'll have already been in power for four years. And then if they run one of their own, he wins a five-year term and then he, you know, runs again and wins. And, you know, you could be talking about effectively, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years of military rule for some of these regimes. I mean, you never know what could happen, right? There could be other coups. There could be, you know, some groundswell of, of popular support for democracy. But, but I think that the juntas are, at least at the moment, pretty well positioned to stay. Um, and if that kind of populist and anti-imperialist appeal dries up, I think then they can lean more on on the repressive side. And I think they've also learned, I was sort of alluding to this before, but but that they really just have to maintain political control over the capital and maybe a few other cities. Um, and that that's sufficient for kind of holding, you know, holding power. Well, you know, through this conversation, we've talked about uh, the role that, you know, France plays, the role that America plays. Uh, and then also this just, you know, a political swell motivated by the demographics of having so many young people with relatively uh, grim economic prospects. Mm -hmm. What do you think America broadly should do, should change about the way they engage with West Africa and by extension Africa at large to position ourselves best within this increasingly important strategic? Yeah, huge, huge question. I mean, and a, and a great question. I mean, I think that, I think one thing I would do is like, stop taking um, trips and summits as, as accomplishments in and of themselves. I think that that's been one thing that, that this administration and the Obama administration did a little too much of, you know, okay, they held, you know, big Africa summits, they've, you know, high level visits, right, you know, Blinken or the First Lady or Kamala Harris or whoever goes, but that's not an accomplishment, right? Like a trip is, a trip is maybe part of building a relationship. It's not an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, and I think sometimes from this administration, the Obama administration, there's been too much kind of box ticking, like, okay, we did this, we did that, we sent this person there, we held this summit. But again, I don't think it's that substantive. I think then the other thing I would say is a point that I made before about, about being more consistent. You know, I think the US, you know, if it wants to exercise some sort of moral authority, it would, it would have to be, you know, more critical of, of allies who abuse power. Um, whether it's Bazoum, whether it's, you know, the, the current president of Cote d'Ivoire who had, you know, who had a third term, um, whether it's Macky Sall, you know, who again has not, you know, completely relinquished his, his chokehold on power, even though he's going to step down. Um, I think then, you know, in the Sahel in particular, and this would, I mean, this would not apply as much to other parts of the, the continent that are more stable and have better, you know, economic prospects. But in the Sahel, I think the emphasis should be on humanitarian relief, um, rather than any kind of quest for for political influence or security influence i think that you know a i think it's the right thing to do to try to you know to try to help people who are displaced who are food insecure etc um and then also i think it would would build more goodwill toward the us i think then you know that that you know as i was saying before i don't think that you know 
all the deployments, massive investments and training and so forth that I don't think that they've really yielded anything to speak of. And I would scale back significantly on that, um, partly because it doesn't work. And then partly also because I think it sends the wrong message. You know, if the U.S. is most visible when we're kind of, you know, teaching soldiers to, to jump out of, you know, helicopters or scale buildings for sort of, you know, fantasy terrorist rescue operations that are, you know, hostage rescue operations that are never actually going to happen in real life. Um, I think that all sends the wrong message. Well, Dr. Alex Thurston, thank you so much for uh, coming on Security Dilemma. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for all your questions. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.